Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning American historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, whose new book is called Leadership, Lessons from the President's Turbulent Times. Welcome, Doris. Thank you. Now, this is a sort of rather different proposition from your previous books, isn't it? It's a kind of pulling out themes. And you've chosen four presidents, haven't you? Can I ask you why you chose those four, apart from the other one that therefore you've already written books about? Well, I chose the four I knew the best because I wanted to look at them in a new way. Each time I finished a book, I had to make a choice about which new president I would then spend 10 years with. It takes me so long to write these books. And each time I left the old guy behind, I'd feel a little bit guilty, like I was leaving an old boyfriend behind. <laughs> so now I figured if I just kept the four that I knew the best, Abraham Lincoln, the two Roosevelts, and LBJ, and looked at them through the lens of leadership. In the other books, they're biographies, so they're, they're colleagues, they're families, everything that happens to them is part of it. But this way, I just wanted to watch how they became leaders, where their ambition came from, how they went through loss and, and became wiser and then just choose some case studies which showed their leadership strength. So it turned out to be more of an adventure and take me longer than I thought it would. I thought I knew them, I could do this, but I had to learn a lot more. Yeah, you also, do, I, mean, you, I mean, you start by setting out a, you know, a sort of series of chapters which is each, each president in their young life, essentially, the sort of beginning of their political careers and how they came to their ambition. And you talk about the, you know, how they govern in their time and dealt with their times. But then you use four sort of case studies, I suppose, as you call it. You, you have Lincoln as what's it, it's transformational, I think, where you're talking about Lincoln and emancipation. And then you've got the crisis management, which is Teddy Roosevelt and the coal crisis and the coal strike. Turnaround is FDR dealing with the Great Depression. And finally, transformational stuff, LBJ and civil rights. Did you have that kind of framework in mind when you started? No. The only thing I knew when I started is that I wanted to start with them when they were young. And mainly because when I was at a college lecture talking about leadership lessons from the White House, from the Roosevelts, a young kid raised his hand and said, how can I ever become one of them? They're on Mount Rushmore. They're on the currency. Movies are made about them. It's too far to aspire. So I figured if I started when they first run for office, they're going to struggle. They're going to fail. They're not going to know what they're doing. And they'll be cocky and they'll get a comeuppance. And that would be good for young leaders to watch. And then I realized, so I start when each one runs for office. And I want them to grow through that, to watch them grow and see where their ambition comes from. All these questions when I was in graduate school, we used to play around with, where does ambition come from? What leadership qualities are inborn? What are developed? And then I realized they'd all gone through a terrible crucible, which in the leadership theory, they claim that people who do that, and it makes sense, if they come out the other end, they can be wiser. So then I reached the presidency, and if I'd done their whole presidencies, the book would have again been 2,000 pages. And the last one I wrote on the bully pulpit was so fat that a woman told me she was reading it when she went to bed at night, and it broke her nose when she fell asleep. So <laughs> the only way to keep this down to a manageable size was to do just pick out the pivotal moments in their presidencies. But I didn't come to that till I was halfway through. Yeah. Well, well can we start, start by talking about the beginnings of them, because they, they did come, you know, I mean, as you point out when you're talking about Theodore Roosevelt and, you know, contrasting it with Lincoln, who's come before, you know, one of them was a sort of country boy who was complete autodidact, and Theodore Roosevelt had everything on a plate, you know, I mean, he, he wanted to learn to fight, and so his father hired a prize fighter to teach him to box and so forth, you know, I mean, everything he had he, it was, was given to him. Are there absolute common threads you think you can draw between these four? 
I mean, you're absolutely right. It is true that the paths that they took to leadership are so varied. I mean, two come from very privileged backgrounds, FDR and Teddy Roosevelt. Lincoln had unimaginable poverty and LBJ had sporadic hard times. But there are certain things I think that they had in common as they went along the way. I mean, they all were able to grow. And that's really important. And how do you grow in office through two qualities, especially humility, the willingness to accept error and learn from your mistakes and empathy, developing empathy toward other people and toward, especially if you're coming from a privileged background, toward people that you wouldn't have had ordinary regulation kinds of relationships with. So Lincoln had from the start, I think, an inborn empathy. That's what's different about him. Even when he was a kid, he hated when his little friends used to put hot coals on turtles to make them wriggle. They thought that was funny. And he went after them and said, how can you hurt somebody? There's pain in that person. Whereas Teddy Roosevelt admitted when he first went into office that he wasn't going in to make other people better or because he felt great empathy for other people. He just thought it would be an adventure. But then once he got in office for a while and he saw decrepit tenements or he saw child labor, he saw things that he realized were wrong. And then he made the change that Lincoln already made when he first ran, that he wanted to do something that would make people's lives better. Even at 23, Lincoln starts off saying, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to be worthy of their esteem. So that's an extraordinary thing when you're 23. Yeah, the, to I mean, say the that. second half of it is the unusual bit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In fact, I told that to President Obama when I was interviewing him before he left office. And he said, well, I'm not sure I can admit that I had that peculiar ambition when I was young. Maybe my ambition was to make a mark that my absent father might have noticed, or as a mixed race kid, to prove that I could do it. Only later did it get attached to politics and the desire to, to do things once he got in office. So that is with all of them. I mean, Lyndon Johnson really just wants power when he's young. But then at a certain point, he goes through that really tough time when he has a heart attack when he's in his 40s. And he wakes up and he says, what if I died now? What would I be remembered for? He was the most powerful majority leader in the history of the country. But he really felt he hadn't done what he'd like to to stand the test of time. So all of them at some point, what combines them, that ambition for self becomes an ambition for something larger. And then they're willing to take the courage to do something risky. Yeah. Do you, do you think they are representative, these four, of something that goes through either the presidents altogether or the great presidents? Well, I think they do, you know, they do have a family resemblance of leadership traits. I mean, they, they all were able to create a team where people could disagree with them without fear of consequence. I mean, Lincoln famously, his team of rivals, you know, he put them all inside so that they could argue within him and then he could absorb their opinions. Although Lyndon Johnson said that in less noble language, he said, it's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> yes, he, had uh, a, he had a colorful way of speaking it. And FDR had Eleanor, who could always argue with him, welcome Thorne in his side. So they shared that. They share the ability to, you know, to control their negative emotions, unlike Lyndon Johnson sometimes couldn't. But the rest I was going to say, them, Lyndon, as you describe in the book, he really, you know, his team would get what in the UK we call bollockings. He was aggressive, he was domineering, he reduced people to tears. He, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound like a kind of big tent kind yeah, of guy. Yeah. What was it that- It's really interesting. I mean, the outlier is, is the outlier in many of these situations. He could yell at people, you know, he saw somebody writing a letter to his 
mother. He said, can't you do that and take a crap on your own time, please? This is my time. And he would humiliate people publicly. And yet they stayed on and performed well because they felt they were with somebody who had a mission that was accomplishing something, and especially when it was on civil rights. So that's the only way you can make sense of somebody who's not got emotional intelligence in dealing with the team if they're working together on something that they feel they're bigger than they are because of that person. But generally, it doesn't work. Um, but they all shared the ability to communicate in their own technology of the time with the persons. They all told stories. I think stories are, Lincoln said, the best means of being able to communicate rather than facts and figures. Some of them had a great sense of humor, self-deprecating humor. Again, probably not Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. And, and then, however, they all found ways, again, except Lyndon Johnson, to think and to relax and replenish their energies. That's, that was the unheralded leadership trait that I found most interesting. Lincoln actually went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said when the lights went down and a Shakespeare play came on, for a few precious hours he could imagine himself back in Prince Hal's time and forget the war that was raging. Teddy Roosevelt exercised two hours every afternoon. We think we're so busy, we don't have time for any of these things. And yet they were pretty busy with the Civil War and World War II. And, well, Churchill and, always took an afternoon nap. Well, you know? oh, Churchill was, I mean, great. So what happens with Roosevelt, FDR, is he has a cocktail party every night in the White House during World War II. And the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about movies, gossip, as long as the war didn't get mentioned. And then he wanted the people who would be at the cocktail party to live in the White House with him to be ready for the cocktail party. So the White House becomes the most exclusive residential hotel. On the second floor, he's got his, his foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, comes for dinner one night, sleeps over, never leaves till the war comes to an end. His secretary lives with him in the White House. A friend of Eleanor's, Lorena Hickok, lives next door to Eleanor. And the great Winston Churchill comes and spends weeks at a time in the bedroom, diagonally across from Roosevelt's. So when I was working on the book, I became obsessed when I was working on the first one on No Ordinary Time with thinking, I've been up there with Lyndon Johnson when I worked for him when I was 24 on the second floor, but I never thought of asking, where did Churchill sleep? Where was Roosevelt? Where was Eleanor? So it happened Hillary Clinton was listening. She was at a, the White House then, and she invited me to sleep over in the White House so we could figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. <laughs> so two weeks later, she invited me to a state dinner with my husband, after which between midnight and two with my map in hand, we figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was. The Clintons were sleeping where FDR was. And they had given us Winston Churchill's bedroom. There was no way I could sleep. I was certain he was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy and smoking his present cigar. It was great. That but is one of the great pajama parties of all time. The best of all time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Me and Churchill. They had, then there's this great story told in, in World War II, which is when Churchill first came there, right after Pearl Harbor, he and Roosevelt were set to sign a document that put the associated nations against the Axis powers, but no one liked the word associated nations. So early that morning, Roosevelt awakened with the whole new idea of calling them the United Nations against the Axis powers. He was so excited, had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom to tell him the news. But it so happened Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub and had nothing on. So Roosevelt said, I'm so sorry, I'll come back in a few moments. Churchill, amazingly, standing straight, says, oh, no, please stay. The prime minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the president of the United States. So then he tells him the idea of calling them the United Nations. Churchill quotes an entire poem in British literature where the words had once been used. So the next morning, I couldn't wait to go in the bathtub. And then I was in the presence of Churchill's past. Fantastic. <laughs> Now, one of the things that sort of I was interested in, I mean, obviously these are all men, you know, because the history of the presidency has been very male for most of its history, well, all of its history. The relationships with their fathers, at least certainly with 
In fact, I think all four of them really had these. Do you think that's a kind of defining thing or an accident? These no, I think, I think it's very interesting. I mean, Abraham Lincoln's relationship was very difficult with his father. His father didn't appreciate that he loved books. He thought his son was lazy when he'd be reading at the end of plowing in a day and sometimes took the books away from him. And Abraham Lincoln couldn't wait until he was 21. You had to work for your family until you were 21 in those days to get away from him. And they never really reconciled. He had to educate himself. He only had 11 months of full schooling because his father kept taking him out of school to work on the farm. So that bitterness was never resolved. In both- so you describe how he walked, I mean, sort of 10 miles or something to go and pick up a copy of a book. No, yeah. it's astonishing. When he would hear that there was a book on grammar, which was years away because he wanted, I mean, miles and miles away, he, did, he just walked to get it and then returned it. Everything he had to find on his own. And it was said when he got a copy of the King James Bible or Aesop's Fables, he was so excited he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. So he absolutely taught himself. There's no question about that. Whereas Teddy Roosevelt's father was the most enormously wonderful mentor to his son. You know, as you were saying, he, he would have a library ready for him. The minute the kid says, I'd like this book, it suddenly appeared. And he adored his father. And his father was a philanthropist and a, a well-known person in New York City and took the kids on trips, year-long trips, teaching them about all different countries in the world. But then his father died when he was a sophomore in college, and it was a huge blow for him. And somehow that was the first of a series of blows that he would, he would have to endure, including losing his wife and his mother on the same day in the same house when his wife died in childbirth and the mother had come to take care of the wife and she died of typhoid fever. So he'd been through these real trials of fire, but each time somehow remade himself, and I think that's what made him stronger. FDR's father had a series of heart attacks when he was young, so it was really his mother who was the more important force in his life because the father dies and then the mother is so smothering of him that he needed to get some independence and found it in some ways through Eleanor. And then LBJ's father was a state legislator and LBJ loved from the time he was young listening to his father talk about tales in the state legislature, going around the campaign trail with him. Probably he wanted to be in politics, LBJ, from the time he was two years old. And there's such a touching description of when LBJ, I think he makes his first speech, is it? And his father says how proud he is of him. And, yes, yeah, absolutely. Again, LBJ is like 23. He's still not even finished school. And he is given the chance at a picnic to make a speech on behalf of someone else, someone who had given his father a job, and he does a really good job. And then his father is very proud of him. So he, and in fact, the father saw him finally elected to his first office before he died. So that was a great moment when he said he felt like a young man again, even though he was dying to, to be able to watch the sun. You talked about you know, giving the speeches and the use of storytelling, you know, which they certainly had in common, this kind of competing. But was... Is a sort of natural gift for oratory something you find in all the successful presidents, or is it something that some of them have to work on? I think it's both. I mean, I think there's lots of inborn qualities, clearly a gift for language, which like a Shakespeare had or, or perhaps Lincoln had to some extent, is, is inborn. Teddy Roosevelt wrote a, a really interesting article where he said there's two kinds of success in life. The first is if you have a talent that no matter how hard someone else tries, they can't emulate, like a Keats poem or a Shakespeare play. But most success, he said, comes from people developing the talents they have to an extraordinary degree through hard, sustained work. So that I would say that of all of them, he had the gift for language that couldn't be, couldn't be emulated because he was almost a poet, Abraham Lincoln. But then he worked on it. He prepared every speech. He never wanted to speak extemporaneously. I mean, if he were talking to President Trump right now, he would say, just 
prepare what you're going to say, think before you... He could do it. He could argue. He was in these debates with Stephen Douglas. He could counterpunch perfectly Lincoln could. But once he became president, he knew his words mattered, that they carried weight. So he hardly ever spoke spontaneously, which is really interesting because yes, he would have been Gary, great. Gary Wills more or less kind of sheets to pieces that whole myth that he scribbled to get his That's exactly right. He worked on it for days <laughs> before he got... That's right. And, and they all were storytellers. So Teddy Roosevelt, even when he was a young kid... He had an almost photographic memory, so he would read adventure stories, and then he would create a fictionalized version of what he'd read for his younger siblings, and he would entertain them with these winding tales for hours. And FDR loved telling stories, and Lyndon Johnson, too, was a great, you know, he could tell these cowboy stories and stories from the West. But it was more important than that. The stories would be worked into their speeches, like when Abraham Lincoln was giving an important speech, it would be where the country had come from, where they were now, where they had to go on slavery, so that each thing had a beginning, middle, and end. And he said, people remember stories better than facts and figures. And and he he would, when he was on the circuit in Illinois as a young lawyer, they used to travel from one county courthouse to the other, and people would come from miles around to have Lincoln tell actually funny stories, you know, ribald stories sometimes. He could go on hour after hour. When we were working on the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, I had him tell my favorite story of Lincoln's, which is really hysterical. And he told it so well, and it really didn't have a moral or a point. It was just funny. So he was able to make people relax. He said a good story was better than a drop of whiskey, that it took away the melancholy. Yeah, so did he give that story on, on screen? Is he it, did indeed. It, oh. <laughs> it has to do with England, actually. What it had to do with Ethan Allen, came the revolutionary war hero, came to England after the war, and he was coming to a dinner party, and they decided to embarrass him by putting a huge picture of General George Washington in the only outhouse where he'd have to encounter it sooner or later, and they figured he'd be very upset by the indignity of George Washington in an outhouse. But he came out not upset at all. So they said, well, didn't you see George Washington there? Oh, yes, he said. I think it was the perfectly appropriate place for him. What do you mean, they said? Well, he said, there's nothing to make an Englishman shit faster than the sight of General George Washington. (laughs) And he had hundreds of those stories. And Daniel told it great. He even improved on Lincoln in the movie. (laughs) Well, that's a tribute to Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, you yourself have, as it it kind of comes out in this, your career sort of started with a personal acquaintance with Lyndon Johnson. And we've been talking... You know a lot about how he wouldn't. You know he'd shout down people who disagree with him, and he, you know, he'd be very fierce. But you started out as a very junior person with LBJ, and opposed him, and he kind of kept you on. I mean, can you tell that story a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, remarkable... I was cho- it really was a curious way to begin the relationship, and probably set the tone from the start. I had been chosen as a White House fellow. It's a terrific program. Colin Powell was a White House fellow. General Wesley Clark, Senator Tim Worth. You get chosen for a year, you work in a cabinet or the White House staff, and then you go back to wherever you came from. They're trying to give you a sense of public life. So I was a graduate student at Harvard when I was chosen. We had a dance at the White House the night we were selected. He did dance with me. Not that peculiar. There are only three women out of the 16 White House fellows. But as he twirled me around the floor, he said, I want you to work directly for me in the White House. But then it turned out I'd been active in the anti-Vietnam War movement, which the people who chose me knew, but they were also questioning the war, some of them. But I'd written an article with a friend of mine, which I'd sent into the New Republic, and we had heard nothing. And it suddenly came out two days after the dance with the title, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. (laughs) So I was certain he would kick me out of the program and was prepared for it. But surprisingly, he said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. 
So I ended up working for him in the White House, and then I accompanied him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs the last years of his life. It was a great experience. Uh, well, why do you think he did zero in on you? I mean, obviously, in the age of Me Too, you know, he was this nice person to dance with. You work for Direct for Me, or how well, do you, you know, read I, I think part of it was that I was the young academic, and he cared about what the Harvards would think about him. Probably part of it was that I was a woman, and maybe not as threatening as a critic if I'd been a man. I did worry after I started working for him for a period of time that maybe there was some part of my being a young woman there. So I was constantly chattering to him about steady boyfriends, even when I had no boyfriends at all. And everything was perfect until one day he said he wanted to discuss our relationship, which sounded ominous when he took me nearby to the lake, conveniently called Lake Lyndon Johnson. And there was wine and cheese and a red check tablecloth, all the romantic trappings. And he started out, Doris, more than any other woman I have ever known, and my heart sank. And then he said, you remind me of my mother. <laughs> so it was pretty <laughs> embarrassing. So anyway, who knows what was going on in his mind, except that I guess I was going to be an historian in the future. He was looking to the young people to eventually judge him. And, and he minded about that a lot, didn't he, he? They all cared about that. I mean, I think at a certain level, when you really have made a mark in, in history. And then especially as we get the presidents get older, they keep looking back at the other ones before them. And am I, am I measuring up? Am I measuring up? But I think it's actually, a, it's, it's better than the cult of celebrity, at least, to be caring about how you'll fare in communal memory. Because if you're going to last in communal memory in a good way, then you have to have done something that stands the test of time. And that's a pretty good marker for yourself. Yeah. And, and two of these presidents, of course, did die in office. But You've got a lovely epilogue in which you describe going to Lyndon's ranch to work on his memoirs. And it sounds like he kind of carried his presidential habits into his post-presidential life. I mean, there's an extraordinary description of him writing these kind of urgent memos tabulating the egg production from his chickens. And Yeah, I mean, he couldn't stop the kind of frenetic pace that he had once had in the White House. So he always used to get memos in the morning of what was going to be done that day, memos at night of what had been accomplished that day. But now it was at the ranch. So if he finds out that only 200 eggs have been laid the day before, what's the matter with those hens? You better do something about it. Then he had high priority items, priority items, not so important items, high priority to fix a fence, you know, priority to do something about the cows somewhere else. I mean, it was crazy. It was like a ritual need, but it was transplanted to just this small place instead of the world at large. But I think it gave him comfort somehow. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think he was happy at the end of his life? No, I think he was very sad. I mean, I think he knew that his domestic legacy had been cut into. What he did domestically is still a part of the foundation of American life without a question. Medicare, Medicaid, aid to education, immigration reform, PBS, NPR, fair housing, voting rights, civil rights. It's extraordinary what he did. But he knew by then that the war was going to always be part of his legacy. And he just hoped, hoped after hope, that he'd be remembered for civil rights. And he is now. I mean, I think when 50 years passed and all these programs had their 50-year anniversary, the voting rights and civil rights in particular, people began to realize. And he's coming up in the, the way we measure our president, the polls. He's coming up in those now. Oh, good. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the, all, almost all of the items that you mentioned as being his legacy in the making of modern America look much more than they have been recently under threat. And I think it's impossible to talk about you know, leadership and lessons in the presence without talking a bit about you know, the man in the White House now. Where does he sit as a historian in the, the history of the presidency, do you think? Well, it was very funny. Just in, in this last weekend when he gave an interview to Fox News and 
Chris Wallace said to him, you know, well, where do you think you fit in terms of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and FDR and Ronald Reagan? So he said, well, I think I'm an A plus, and then you can't go any higher than that. So I was just thinking that there was a recent presidential poll where he actually was put at the bottom of the poll by historians. It's not really fair to judge him now, but they did anyway. And the person who used to be at the bottom was James Buchanan, who preceded Lincoln and was a terrible president and helped to escalate the problems that led into the Civil War. So the story in the newspapers was that the Buchanan relatives were celebrating. They were no longer at the bottom. <laughs> but I think the problem, forgetting the poll, you just look at the qualities that I think these people shared, a family resemblance, humility, the ability to acknowledge errors and learn from their mistakes. He has a really hard time doing that. Every now and then there'll be a glimmer of saying something that, you know, he just said the other day he should have gone to Arlington Cemetery on on Veterans Day. And that's a good thing for him to finally say that, but it's been very few and far between. It's almost as if acknowledging errors are a sign of weakness. And then empathy is one of the most important qualities that they had. And Lyndon Johnson definitely had that. That's one quality. And that's been difficult to see for President Trump. You know, when the when the fires started taking place in California, his first instinct was to blame the forest management team without showing empathy to the people. When there was a bombing plot against the Obama family and the Clinton family and a whole bunch of high-level leadership, instead of reaching out to them and seeing how they felt, if that bombs had gone off, we would have lost the top leadership. It didn't happen, but it doesn't matter that it might have happened. And instead, he just, you know, blamed the toxic culture by the Democrats that had to do with it. That, that willingness to somehow exude himself to understand people's feelings, even when he won the election. He won. He was president. That's the moment that most presidents reach out to the other people beyond their base. But he's hardly ever traveled outside the states where he loves the oxygen of being with his rallies. So, nor does he control his negative emotions, which these guys did. Obviously, the tweets at the middle of the night are showing that. So you keep waiting for that moment when he will recognize that he's president of all the people and he will have learned from failure. Fable pivot. And I thought the midterms might be that because whatever he says, it was a big loss for him to lose the House, especially as big as it's now becoming. But when he was asked, what did you learn from the midterms? He said, I learned they liked me. You know, and then he talked about how the people who he supported won, and then the people who didn't ask for him lost. And then he just called them by name. They're losers. They're losers. He mentioned their names. And he said, I won what I needed to. They lost. I mean, so that's what you have to learn from that. And I keep thinking he's been in kind of a funk the last couple of weeks, you know, after his European trip where he didn't go to the cemetery here and then got roundly criticized for not going. And then he just simply said, that it was a terrible mistake on his White House staff part because they didn't warn him what a terrible catastrophe PR-wise it would be. But where was the instinct to go with the allies? Where was the instinct to comfort the people in the fire at the first thing before you start blaming somebody? So the question is, does he have the capacity to grow? And that's what we're still looking for now. But if he does have these qualities that are kind of pretty opposed to most of the qualities you draw out in the presidents you're interested in, I mean, how would you explain his success as a historian? Do you think this is just a weird blip or is there some Hegelian reaction going on? To No, I mean, he has to be given credit for the strategic understanding he had for how he designed his campaign. He recognized that there were a large number of people in our country, mostly white, mostly male, who were feeling left behind by globalization and the tech revolution, whose manufacturing base had disappeared, who were leading more working class lives now, they had begun to move toward middle class lives, 
who felt that the elites weren't paying attention to them, many of them in rural areas who felt that the cities were gaining too much dominance. When you look at our map, the coastal areas are all Democrat, and then there's this big blotch of Republicans in the middle. And he went to those people and he made them feel he was on their side, whether and he made immigrants as an enemy of them. But however he did it, I mean, one of the leadership qualities is to make people feel you're on their side. And you watch those rallies and they love him. The idea of making America great again, that there was an America in their past that they liked better than the America in the present. And they want that America back again. But then the question is, can he really deliver to those people? I mean, the tariffs are one way he's trying to do that in the trade. But so far, it hasn't really worked in that direction. He's really not been able to bring coal back to the coal mining towns, which he promised to do. And if he does, the environment will be hurt by it. The tax cut really didn't benefit many of those people. It, it really benefited the rich more than that, but they still love him. So he's been able, as a brand name, which is what he always was, to, to make them, to entertain them, and to make them feel like he's making them feel better. And that has to be accorded some sort of leadership. Yeah. I mean, is there a leadership lesson we can learn from that? I think it may well be that, you know, that, that if I, even though I was arguing before that he didn't have empathy for people when they went through trouble, he understood what these people were feeling, and he's got enough of an entertainment and a celebrity status that he made people want to watch him. I mean, he's entertaining when he's out there. I mean, if, we, if it weren't so complicated, what's happening to our country and the toxic culture that it's producing and the polarization, which was there before him, it's been there for years. It's really, I mean, I think in some ways our country's going through what happened to our country in the turn of the 20th century when there was industrial revolution that shook up the economy, much as the tech revolution and globalization have done now. First time there was a gap between the rich and the poor. Everybody was worried about the working class because they didn't have any kind of protections. And they felt a sense of, of, of rebellion against the upper class. And there were bombs, there were riots in the streets. There was a feeling of a revolution coming. And, and it has that similar time right now where these two sides feel so different from one another. Teddy Roosevelt said, the rock of democracy will founder when people of different regions and, and parties and religions feel that the other is the other instead of a common American citizen. And those people felt then and then feel now, I think, that sense that they are the other. And, and he successfully was able to deal with them. So I, the question is whether or not it's a group of people who are older, many of them. It's a group of white people who are being changed by a much more diverse culture. And whether or not the celebrity part of Trump becomes a pattern. Because they now talk about various sports figures wanting to run for president or various movie stars, which I think would be a problem because you do need experience. And it's shown in him the lack of political experience, no military experience. He's the first president ever who had neither. And, and it has shown in the chaotic administration he's had. He could have surrounded himself with people who who had more experience, but if any of them, the foreign policy establishment, for example, had been anti-Trump, so he wouldn't bring them into his administration. But if that celebrity culture remains how we vote our presidents, then I think we're in, it's not just a blip. But if it was that he captured this lightning at this moment, and that by 2020, even a lot of the people who supported him have not felt that he's actually given them what he promised, and if the Democrats finally talk to to the needs of these people and stop being so elitist as they've become, talking to the coasts as well and, and the people who are educated, then, then I think it will be a blip. But we'll see. We will see. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. 
You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.